Well, friends, it's obvious to us by now that we live in a fragile age. Last year, when we particularly felt this, and now the world wants to forget it, uh, we were preaching through the book of Job. The whole thing. We did a, I think it was an 11-week series in the book of Job. Job lived in a fragile age. We had that first, our cross-reference reading from the book of Job. He felt the fragility of life. And now the Apostle Paul feels it. We live in a fragile age. Of course, it's always been that way since Job or Paul. We, we've always lived in a time and place that's fragile. But more than any other time and place, we here in the West, we here in Australia, have worked very hard to inoculate ourselves against suffering. We try hard to forget the fragility of our existence. We don't want to think about the shortness of life and the inevitability of death. We suppress the truth of evil in the world. And even when it comes up on our news feed or our TV screens, we need to have the nice dog story at the end of the news to forget the other stuff that happened for the first 25 minutes. We dare not think that life and maybe even death has meaning beyond me just having fun. And we tend to think less of living for someone else. Instead, we spend our time, we spend our talents, we spend our treasure on hashtag living the dream of me having what I want. And the Apostle Paul has had all that taken away from him. The Apostle Paul writes from a context that does not seem to be living the dream. I mean, if you were thinking of a career path and you looked at the way Paul's work, his career went, it would not seem like one you would choose. If you're looking for a worldview that meant that you would have a better life, would you pick Christianity if you saw this? Yet, with all the trouble that Paul has, he says repeatedly in this book, I rejoice. Is he a weirdo? Why rejoice? And then he even says here, which we're going to engage with, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, that phrase speaks into the face of everything that is Australian. To die, I get more? To die is gain? No, 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 no. I need to prolong my life. I need to have a better life. This is all life is. To die is not gain. To die is to lose. And I want to forget about that. It might not happen for me for a long time. But Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Could I say that? Do I honestly say that? Could you? Are you living the dream like this? Paul writes that this life of getting that concept 
into our minds and into our hearts and into the way we live, it's not something that comes naturally, it's supernatural. He says it comes through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. We pick it up in verse 19. Paul writes this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, although Paul's in prison and he says, I, I will be delivered, this may not mean what we think it means. Initially, we think, yeah, of course, Paul's in prison. He's been in prison before. He'll be set free. He's hoping for an early release. But we know that if this is the Roman prison he's in, which most likely it is, he's never released. But you don't need to know kind of history around that and try and find some other works around that. It's in the text. Because when you keep reading, Paul doesn't speak as if he's expecting to be released from prison necessarily. He speaks about another release, another deliverance. In fact, the word he uses, soteria, means salvation. It's the same word that we use for salvation in other places in Philippians. We see it there, but we also see it throughout the Bible. Paul uses a word intentionally. Where he could use another word, he uses the word, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. Yes, he could have his eyes on perhaps being, escaping, leaving, being freed from prison. But when Paul is speaking and we get to know him, if Paul was ever speaking about his future being bright, have you heard the phrase, the best is yet to come? It was coined and it's been made very famous by particularly kind of a kind of a pres- prosperity preaching kind of culture of yet yeah, it's always going to get better it's going to get better and better and better and friends for some Christians around the world it doesn't and the best is not necessarily yet to come here it actually might not be getting better and when you meet Paul and we're meeting him here in the Bible When you meet Paul, is he the kind of person that would say, the best is yet to come in this life, your best life now? No, he's the kind of person that says, look friends, our future is incredibly bright. But our future is incredibly bright, not here on this old earth, but on the new earth. And so he speaks about having a full and future experience of eternal salvation. And the word salvation can be used generally three ways in the Bible. It can mean past tense, save from sin. So if you're in the book of Romans, and we were there a few years ago, uh, Romans, you are, you are saved from sin in the sense that you've been justified, forgiven, saved from sin. That's, that's one way it's used. Another way is that uh, present tense of saved from the power of sin in your life. Not just saved from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin in your life. So that you see in Romans 6 or Romans uh, 7 going into 8, what it means to actually see uh, putting sin to death um, and, and, and seeing its power reduced in your life, although it's still present. Because the future way salvation is used is saved from the presence of sin forever in the new earth where there's no more tears, no more sin. And I think this is what Paul is primarily talking about. You see, Paul knows his future is incredibly bright 
And that's the future he's living for. question is, are we? Paul is not saying the best is yet to come on earth. It's hard being a prosperity preacher when you're in prison. Paul knows this. Of all the people who have been in prisons and have seen great escapes, who's done that in the Bible? Paul. When was the Philippians church planted? Acts 16. What happened to Paul in prison in Acts 16? He was in prison and there was a great earthquake and he was set free. But Paul writes saying, there'll be no Philippi prison here. Paul borrows the language of Job 13 that was our cross-reference passage. We always have a cross-reference passage, usually from the Old Testament if we're preaching the New Testament. And we notice the Bible is coherent, it joins together. And he quotes Job 13 verse 16, this will be my salvation. This, this will be used by God for me to hold on to his secure salvation that he promises me. This will turn out for my salvation. Whatever happens, he says, I'll rejoice. Paul's joy is not dependent upon the outcome of his trial, it's upon the salvation of his soul. And he's rejoicing in the certainty of being in Christ, regardless of him being in prison. For he knows that through the prayers of the church at Philippi, and with the help of the Spirit of Christ, two things are his confidence. One, he won't be ashamed. Prison holds a lot of shame, doesn't it? Prison holds a lot of shame for people. Uh, Later this term, we're we're going to see, um, we're inviting, um, his name is Ian Whitehill from Prison Ministries International. He's going to speak about prison ministry, a ministry that we'd like to support and serve in. When you serve in prison ministry, you walk into a room of people who know their shame, they know their guilt, they know what sin is, they don't need some sort of elite dictating that sin doesn't exist in the world. They live in a place that tells them what sin is. Paul says in prison, because he has Christ, he will not be ashamed. And secondly, Christ will therefore be honoured. Even though he feels like prison could be a place that even Christians turn turn their faces away. No, no, Christ is going to be honoured. He is with me, even in prison to the end of the age. Even in my so-called worldly shame, Christ will be honoured. And notice this for Paul. The opposite of being ashamed for Paul is not that he is honoured. It's that Christ is honoured. We so much want to attach honour to ourselves... I did that. Will I be recognised for that? Will someone notice me for that? Paul is not like that. Paul is wanting to attach honour to Christ, not himself, not glory for himself. And here is something so powerful for us to believe. Here's a diagnostic question for your heart. How do you know what you really believe matters? How do you know what you really believe about life matters? It's when your belief is tested by the hard times. That's when it matters. Everyone has a belief system, everyone has a doctrine. People talk about doctrine like, oh, doctrine is dry. Don't talk about doctrine. 
Doctrine just means what you believe and teach. The doctrine of life. So there's military doctrine, there's a doctrine of how you do schooling, everything's got a doctrine. Everything has a framework of what you believe that's about or what life's about, what work is about, what your, your particular recreations are about. All has a belief system. And what you believe about life, your doctrine of life, whether you believe life is just this life, that's all that matters, or life is about my pleasure, or life is about my work or my gain, whatever it is, when that belief system is tested, then you'll know if it stands up. So here's the question. With your belief system, do you believe that trials will not drive you to despair, but prayer? Will trials drive you to despair or prayer? Because I think we see our belief systems crumbling, even as Christians, when we would rather despair with all the symptoms that come around for that, rather than going to God in prayer. Like we said recently, hot tip, and Paul will talk about things like anxiety in Philippians. We're going to look at anxiety. He'll talk about anxiety that moves to anger in Philippians, conflict, grumbling. Here's a question. Could you turn your grumble into a prayer? You know, when we grumble about someone, we have to grumble, grumble, grumble. Does grumbling about someone ever change them? Does it change their circumstances? How much grumbling ever changed anything, by the way? What about praying for them instead? Turn your grumble into a prayer. Does despairing about... I don't know, things like maybe an election despairs you or whatever it is in the world. You think, the world is out of control, it's out of control, it's out of control. It's actually never been out of control. It's always in God's control. But could you turn your despair into a prayer and pray and talk to the one who's actually in control, always has been, always will be. In fact, here is another thing that's wonderful about when you see God's sovereignty that we sang about. He's even allowed the election to fall into the place it has done. It's his grand design, his good purposes. He can even use, if God can use the most horrible, painful things in life for his good purposes, that's sovereign power. God is not in heaven going, oh, didn't think that was going to happen. Oh, man, I've got to do some extra things now to fix this up. God is not frightened. He's not thwarted, Job says. No, he's in control. How do we know that? Think of the most horrible thing that's happened in human history. The cross. Whose idea was that? Who was sovereign in that moment? Do you know who was sovereign in the moment of the cross? The one who was hanging on the cross. Totally in control. Do your trials drive you to prayer instead of despair? Why? Why can they? Because, friends, as we see in this passage, prayer is Powerful. Prayer is powerful, not because we're powerful and not because we use powerful words. In fact, the Bible guards against using special words. If we do get this 
5 p.m. prayer gathering happening. Here's my dream. Here's my vision for a prayer meeting. It's not for anyone, for me or anyone else, to come along with special words, long words, jargon words, long prayers to impress people. Don't pray to impress someone else. You're not even talking to them. You're talking to the one who is not impressed by you but loves you. Come along to a prayer meeting and pray a 10-second prayer. If it's 10 minutes, we're not going to you know, run you out the door. But, but you don't pray to impress. You pray to rely. You pray to rely on God. That's why prayer is powerful, because you're relying upon the most powerful person in the universe. God himself. James writes in James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Why? Because that's how God works. Do you believe that? Do you pray because you believe that? Because you can, friends. Paul believed that. And he believed that knowing, and he writes this. You look at verse 19. He writes this. He says, For I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Christ, that's where my deliverance comes. That's where my salvation is secured. However insecure you feel now, it's through the other's prayers that help you. Friends, pray for the preaching of Reforming Church. Pray for our Bible studies, our groups that get together. Pray for one another. Pray for people in their insecurities. When you think of someone, pray for them. In a Reformed Church, we often say this, prayer is one of the ordinary means of grace. It's a funny way to describe, isn't it? Ordinary means of grace. We just call it ordinary. Why do we call it that? We call it that is because that is the ordinary means God has given us, graced us with, to enjoy his grace in even, that we would actually go to him ordinarily. You see, we often go to him in exceptional circumstances, not in ordinary circumstances. I'm really feeling it this season or this week. I'll go to God. But when things are going well, I just kind of like chuff along and I rely on myself. I can fix this myself. My intellect, I will use rather than actually... Now, the ordinary means of grace is ordinarily every day, an ordinary day in life, I actually rely upon him in prayer. That's his means of grace for how I can actually work out he's God, I'm not, and I rely on him. And we'll sing later, whatever happens. Paul says, through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. But he says, whatever happens, whatever happens, I am going to be saved and safe with Christ. At the end of our time this morning, we are going to sing a song called Whatever Happens. As we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we'll teach one another, Colossians in song. And there's a line in Whatever Happens, it goes like this, and we rejoice because we know that through your prayers and the spirit of Jesus, in our distress, his name will be exalted in trials we will not be ashamed We rejoice, we rejoice. In trials, we will not be ashamed. Have you had trials where you just feel the shame of something? Perhaps it's a false accusation. 
Perhaps it's you know people are talking about you or perhaps it's you're out of relationship with someone in such an acute way and you can't fix it. You can't seem to fix it. Could you say, could you sing, in trials we will not be ashamed? Because through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. Paul has been rejoicing in prison in this way. No matter what future he faces, whatever happens. And we rejoice because, like with Paul, we can say to live as Christ, to die as gain. Verse 21, Philippians 1.21. Paul writes, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. Paul says, I really want to be with Christ. And this might be my ticket out of here. Not just out of prison, but out of this earthly shackle of life, of sin and death and grief. Now, when people read verse 21, and I've had conversations with people over one-to-ones many a time, and they said, What is Paul thinking, though? You look at verse 21, and he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is he thinking? Is Paul talking about giving up on life? Something worse. And for some of us, we have family context, context with friends that we know people who have given up on life. And some of these things are deep and heartfelt. Can I say in this moment, because this is a longer conversation, we are here for one another. More than just for one day, are you okay? We are here for one another. And we've preached on Christ cares for your mental health before. You can go and look that up. But here Paul is not saying he's giving up on life. He's not talking about that. What is he saying? He knows he might die soon. At the hands of a Roman trial. He may continue for many years to come, yet given the choice, what would he do? Would he just despair of death? The question Paul is asking is one that you and I need to ask for. Here's the question. What are you living for? For if you live for this life now... And you have something or being something in this life, you know, having or being something in this life is what life is about. Here's the question. Whatever you find value in, whether it is having something or being something in this life, what happens to that meaning and value when you die? For some of us, living the dream means uh, having pleasure. We want money, we want fun, we want recreation. For to me, to live is pleasure. And to die, therefore, is I lose everything. So I try and have as much pleasure as I can cram into life now before I die. And that's how many people live. We cram our weekends, we cram our, we cram our lives, we cram everything so full of me having pleasure. 
for some others. It's not pleasure. It's, we actually live for other people, but we live it in strange and often extreme ways. We live for family, or we live for friends, which often means we end up living to please them. And that ends up elevating them to a place they should not be elevated to. It's good to love family. I love my family. But my family should never be the God of my life. Because that will ruin my life. And they should never let me be the God of their life because I make a bad God. Let me tell you. Or we might live for our career. We might live for... Having something, be it a reputation or a status or a a, a power level, whatever it is, in our job, our work, our career, we might live for our career. Or it might just be we live to have control of my life. A lot of us believe that we can have control and then when that control is taken away so easily in this life, which it is, we get angry, very angry. But the reality is we are not in control because we all die. Most of us in this room are going to die. I mean, we'd like to die. What what is your dream way of dying? 90. In an aged care home, they've only been there for the last six months of my life because the rest of my life until that point was healthy. So I'm in aged care, I've slowly forgotten the hard things of life and I just die peacefully in my sleep. That's our dream death. And if we get to 100, even better. That's not reality. I I regularly preach and run a service in an aged care home. That is not reality. Most of us are going to die uncomfortably, And probably without a little dignity. We desire something different, but the reality is we are not in control. And even if we try and take even death into our control, which we see in our society, because we want to so-called die with dignity, there's actually not even dignity in that. Which is a shame because... We could actually be helping people understand that there's something more than just leaving this life. In life and death, a Christian has everything in Christ. We have the only one who is in control and the only one who's been to death on a cross and the only one who's been to death and back. Jesus died the humiliating death of indignity for our gain. For our gain. For your gain, we have value and meaning. We know what life is about in every trial, even if we were to die tomorrow. See, when you die, what will you lose? With Christ, the equation is always on the plus side. It's always gain. There's no loss. And here, look at Paul. Paul is in the earth, Paul's earthly life, if you were to look at his earthly life and measure it to everyone else around him, Paul's earthly life is falling apart. Paul's earthly life is turning to sand. He's lost his career as a church planter. 
He's lost his ability to go and do whatever he wants. He's cut off from his friends. But he expresses that he hasn't lost everything. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, you can face anything if you believe that. You can face anything in life if you actually believe to live as Christ and to die as gain. And as Paul writes with what is before him, what would he choose right now given the choice? We know he has Christ for eternal days. Today he would say, yeah, I'd, I'd take Christ. I'd, Christ is gain. But notice what he does in verse 26. Pick it up in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul has been saying in the middle of this passage, I don't know which one to choose. To live as Christ, to die as gain, which one I choose? I want Christ, of course. Why is the dilemma? Why is I don't know which one to choose? Isn't it obvious? Not when you see Christ's people. It's still obvious that, well, to die is gain. To die, he gets Christ. But what he says is this. Whilst I still am here, whilst I'm still even in prison, how will I live? I live for your sake. What does he mean? Look at verses 25 and 26. You can summarize it as this. He lives for your progress and joy in the faith. He lives for others' progress and joy in the faith. See in verse 25, he's got this dilemma that moves to his decision. Verse 25, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. This is how Paul views life. This is the Christian living the dream. That we live, remain, continue, partner, fellowship and serve with one another, for one another. For one another to progress in the gospel, in our discipleship of Christ and for one another's joy in Christ. This is the ultimate purpose of living for the Christian. This is why we continue on. It's from the small to the big, isn't it? I mean, the big is obviously we wouldn't just give up on life because there are others that need us to encourage them. But the smaller is just smaller examples of this. I'm from New South Wales originally. It has, in my worst moments, crossed my mind, look, Victoria's pretty hard. I was moving back to New South. Why would I continue here? For you. To encourage you. To encourage others in your joy and progress in the faith. You might have the same questions. Why would I stick at this church? It's not very impressive. I mean, the other people are impressive, but the pastor, the preacher's not very impressive. Why would I stick it here? It's just, you know, it's, it's not the best concert in town. It's not the best sound and light show. It's, uh, yeah, morning tea is great. In fact, everything else is great. I'm just going to say, you know, let's pick out what's not great. But, but why do we stay? To encourage one another for your progress and joy in the faith. 
And then we see in verse 26 that we may glory in Christ Jesus. I didn't grow up Presbyterian, but the Presbyterians have this thing, and you know, it's called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So kids grow up learning it, and we're trying to teach our kids this over time. But the first question is always the one we always know, isn't it? It's the famous one. And it goes like this. What is the chief purpose of humanity? You probably know the answer. If you don't, that's okay, because it's a, it's a great thing to learn. The chief purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You see that? To glorify God and enjoy him. I think sometimes we can forget the enjoy bit. It's actually to enjoy God. It's actually to glory in Christ and enjoy him that matter what loss I face in this life, I get Jesus. I have the joy that I could say with Paul, I rejoice, yes I will rejoice, again I'll say rejoice because I've got Jesus. We get to glorify God and enjoy him forever which means death is about gain. So what is life about now? In the meantime, it's about Jesus. And it's about others being in Jesus Christ as well. It's about encouraging one another. That's living the dream for the Christian. See, living the dream in Australia is hashtag, my life is satisfied. I get my pleasure. I get my stuff. Living the dream in Australia is me, me, me. But living the dream in Christ is you, you, you. Are you living in Christ? Will your dying be gain? What we keep seeing in Philippians in this book is a book of joyful reality. Joyful community, joyful reality is mature Christianity. When we come to church and we look at verses 25 to 26 that we just read just then, this is the real reality lived experience of the Christian life. It's not a dress rehearsal. This is the taste of the heavenly reality now. And that means verse 25 is real for us, friends. Where Paul writes that he will remain and continue with one another for one another's progress and join the faith. Here is how we apply this. This is what this really does mean for us. This means that as we belong to Christ's body, the Lord actually uses you to help others glorify God and enjoy him. Which means a few things what it means for us. It means we now look at one another as opportunities for encouragement it's not how the world looks at one another the world looks at one another and you come from the world every Sunday we come in through those doors we come from a world that looks at opportunities for competition opportunities to take from opportunities to hurt to put down so they can elevate themselves opportunities to grumble against opportunities to criticize opportunities to do whatever it is about one another that is how the world operates not here here is when i look at you and you look at me and we look at one another we are looking at opportunities to encourage because we live in a world that is lacking in courage What I love about that word, that word encourage is, I love the in words. It is a combo word. It is encourage, to give courage, to lift people up with courage. 
So when you look around at one another, that is the opportunity before us. Not to tear them down, not to criticize them needlessly, grumble about them, but to encourage them. We don't need more discouragement here. There are discouragement experts all over Australia. We get to specialise in something that people don't have. In fact, I'd put it to you, it's compelling and they're missing out on. And if they knew it was here, we pray that they might meet Jesus and receive it too. Encouragement. And what it means for us, I think, is significant. Even in the little things that seem insignificant. Give you an example. What will it mean? What will it mean for us to remain and continue with one another? I think it means the ministry of morning tea is more significant than we've realised. It means when we come to church for gathered worship, we don't just come for one hour in the seats. We come, maybe it might be, another hour of meet and greet. It might be. We actually remain at church to encourage one another. We get to come to do that for one another. Look, friends, I know there's need and time when you've got to rush off. I get it. And this is not a critique of how long you stay at church. We don't have timers. There are no clocks. It's not about that. None of that. But when we come... We get to come not just for an event in the seats. We come for a friendship, a fellowship with one another. We come to encourage one another for one another's progress and joy in the faith. Have conversations about how are you going in those hurts and hardships? How is the gospel of Jesus helping you see that your future is still incredibly bright, even if you are facing incredible loss? How can I encourage you? How can I genuinely pray for you? Because Paul writes it through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. So how can it be through my prayers that you are helped this week? We can talk about these things. We can encourage one of these things. These are real realities that we get to embrace by grace. They're given to us. These are not rules. No one is scolded into friendship. You need to be that person's friend or else I won't be your friend. That's never going to work. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel works by grace. It's a gift. We are given one another to encourage one another to keep going to Jesus for one another in our prayers. It's a wonderful grace of God. This is a joy, isn't it? I think you'll find as you encourage people in their progress and join the faith... There's an outcome of that for you too. You'll have progress and joy in the faith. Some of us feel like failures though, don't we? Do you ever feel like you're just never good enough? For some reason I've been sharing with my group, we, in our group, in our small group, uh, we pray for one another. Uh, we've taken up a custom, it was Amy's idea. I mean, I'm not saying that because I'm blaming her. Uh, um, but we, we said, how about we just, you know, because we used to sort of just say, who wants to pray? Who, would like, who, who wants to share for prayer points? Which is a good thing to do. What we've done lately is, no matter how many in the room, and sometimes there's a lot, sometimes there's a little, but we say, could one person, every person share one thing we could pray for? And, and if you are embarrassed to share, there's no compulsion, right? So feeling like, I was going to go to that group, no, I'm not. No. 
we share one thing to pray for. And we go around and we say, perhaps this week, the person to your right, you pray for them. And if you don't want to pray, you don't have to. There's no compulsion again. But I think the culture of that's been really helpful. And what I've noticed is this. um, I'm more honest in my prayers. So it's tempting to pray for other people, right? Yeah, pray for me as I meet with that guy one-to-one on Saturdays and read the Bible with him because he's not a Christian. He's looking to Christianity. So I, I, I'll ask for that. But no, no, I'm, I'm actually asking, and this is what I've been saying this season, I've had a growing sense of I am not good enough. I can't put my finger on why, but maybe it's a complexity of a lot of different conversations and a lot of different things happening in my life. But I feel like I've just never... I don't do a good, good enough job, whatever's going on in my life. You know? and, and I could be like the Apostle Paul who who says, you know, who is sufficient for these things, maybe it's that, whatever's going on, but here's what it is, and it's not about me. It's through the prayers of the people and the help of the Spirit of Christ, I've seen God encourage me. I need that. I need your prayers. You need one another's prayers. And as that happens, and as we pray for other people and their honesty, you know what we see happening? It gives us joy to pray that way. There's a real joy in praying for one another, encouraging one another. Looking at one another through the lens of joy in Jesus changes everything. It changes how we love people. It changes how we, perhaps when we don't like people, that we can actually love them through prayer. Paul, in prison, has a heart attitude that says, I want to be with you. But I can't, so I want to pray for you as you pray for me. As we live for Christ, as we live the dream. As we finish, I want to speak to the person in the room or online who may be looking into Christianity. They're looking into this joyful community. They're looking into Philippians with us. And that's, if that's you, I just want to ask you this. Have you noticed that death can now be gained? Have you noticed that death can be gain? That is countercultural to everything we live for in Australia. Do you know the fear-proof joy of knowing Jesus Christ in the face of death? Do you know the fear-proof joy of knowing that you can now live for others' joy and that actually won't mean you're miserable, it actually increases your own joy? To have this joy is the power of living the dream truly forever. To live as Christ, to die as gain. Is to live by faith, trusting in, relying on the one, Jesus Christ, who lived the life you couldn't live. Jesus lived the perfect life, the life that you and I could never live, to die the death that you and I deserve. And he died a death that you and I could never come back from. We would not recover. And he more than recovered, he's resurrected to new life. He gave his life through death for your joy in life and death. So in the fragility of life, it's where we started. In the fragile life that you and I lead... Do you see the opportunity before you 
to trust in Jesus in life and death. That gives you a joy and a life and an eternity where you never lose. Let's thank God for that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that whatever happens, we have Christ. Help us by your spirit to love one another in such a way that this would be so for one another too, it would be true for them. Help us in our ministry of morning tea to encourage one another, in our church picnic next week to encourage one another, in our prayer gatherings to pray for one another and to pray for our community, our city, our region, from Bendigo beyond through to be that Pyramid Hill, Heathcote, be it as far as even New South Wales and beyond, that we would see people of the nations beyond our shores know the joy of Christ Jesus in their life. Father, we want to see many more people. We desire this, to see many more people have gain. And we ask this for them, thanking you, give it to us by grace, in Jesus' name. Amen.